everybody can hear. Yeah. Uh, that's an amazing song. Uh, so thank, thank you for singing that this morning. It goes perfect with the service. So let's go ahead and take time of fellowship, and uh, we'll, we'll get you start the song here in five minutes. Thank you. 
right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. And again, I said it last week, and I said it just earlier, I think that our, our music is as beautiful as it can possibly be. And I'm so thankful for that. We prayed for years that God would bless us with beautiful music. And he has done that, and we, we praise God for that. Um, I, I go back, and, and I don't go back and listen to the sermons. I go back online, and I listen to the songs again. And just uh, amazing how beautiful the singing is and the words, the lyrics, the way those they, they put the songs together that go with the service. And, and we ought to be thankful to God and to them for the, for the beautiful music that we have here. Uh, but Matthew chapter 26, and we're continuing our study in the last three chapters of Matthew. I said last week this would be our road to the cross or our journey to the cross. We've got three chapters, and we're going to just take it step by step leading up to um, the... Uh, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, the, the event of all events, is when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. And we're just going to follow those events leading up to that big event. And here today we come to what I would consider, and I think you would too, um, one of the most, if not the most detestable act in the entire Bible. Uh, and I won't even say in the Bible, I think it may be the most detestable act in all of history. As we come to, I mean, I can't think of anything worse. I don't know if you can. We come to the time when Judas betrays Jesus. And this is not a passage that's, that's fun to preach. It's not one that's fun to hear. But it's something that we all need to hear. There's a warning that is in this passage, in this dramatic scene. And I think there's some weightiness to it. You're going to feel it. You're going to see it as I preach it. There's just a, a seriousness about it as you preach it or as you hear it, as you read it that I want you to, to feel. Uh, this is a passage that speaks about heaven and hell and how close someone can come to Jesus, some, how close someone can come to heaven and still go to hell. So I want to show you this morning the worst betrayal ever. So let's stand together. I want to read verses 17 through 25, and you'll see this is the worst betrayal ever. Starting in verse 17, it says, And now... The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee the, to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, in the middle of supper, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not even been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And Jesus said unto him, You said it. Thou hast said. This is the worst betrayal ever. And we're going to study it today and, and, and take its warning to heart. And maybe we can ask that question of ourselves. Is it I? Is it me that would do something like this? Let's pray together and we'll study this passage. Father, we uh, come to this passage with... Uh, and knowing its weight and seriousness, and how close someone can come to heaven and still go to hell. And God, I, I ask that you would help us all today, not just to understand this passage. We need to do that, and I need your help in preaching it. 
But we would examine our hearts um, and see if it's us. If this might be us one day who turns our back on Christ and walks away. So God, help us to examine our hearts, to examine ourselves and see if we're really in the faith. Um, but I know that this is something that we need to do. Not all the time, but sometimes we need to come to passages like this and really look deep into our hearts. There may be someone in here today who is not truly saved. And I pray, God, that today that they will know the mercy of Christ and be saved. Please bless the, the preaching of your word today. I know that you always honor your preaching. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I found a list of questions this week that I think are worth asking. So I'm just going to go down a list of questions, and I, I want you to just think about them as I ask them. And it's going to be five, six, seven, eight questions, and it's worth us thinking about. So here we go. Number one, how close can someone be to Jesus and still not know him? How close can someone be to the truth and still not believe it? How close can someone be to the gospel and still not receive it? How close can someone be to going to heaven and still go to hell? How close can someone be to the narrow gate and still not enter into that narrow gate but be on the broad road? How close can someone be to eternal life and still die and experience eternal death? How close can someone be to salvation and still receive damnation? How much can someone know about Jesus and yet still not know him? And the answer to every single one of those questions can be found in one person. It's Judas Iscariot here in this passage. As we look at Judas, he, we know that he looked the part. All these, all these questions, he had that. He, he looked the part. He was a disciple chosen by Jesus himself. One of the twelve. And one of the, the closest. It wasn't one of five hundred. It wasn't one of a of thousand. It was one of twelve. Judas was as close as anybody could possibly be. He had a front row seat to everything that Jesus did. He was a disciple. He was a follower. For three years he followed Jesus. This wasn't a, a, a week-long thing or a weekend thing. This was a, a three-year relationship with Jesus where he followed him everywhere he went and saw everything that he did. He made the profession and he followed Jesus for three long years through the good times and through the bad. He was a servant. Jesus gave him a special role. He was the, the money keeper. This was a, a trusted position in the, the group. We look at this guy and think that he's, he's as trustworthy as any of them. We're not going to give it to Peter. We're not going to give it to John. We're going to give it to, to James. Who's the most trustworthy in the group? It's a, to keep the money. It has to be Judas. By all outward appearances, Judas was the real deal. Everybody thought so. He'd be a guy that you'd see in church and you'd say, if anybody's right with God, it's that guy. That's Judas. He had a front row seat to all the sermons. He sit on the front row. He heard the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Matthew 24 and 25. He sit through it all. He heard about heaven and he heard about hell and he heard about hypocrisy. He heard every sermon that Jesus preached. He saw all the miracles. He was on the boat as Jesus walked on water. He was there when they fed the thousands. He was probably one with a basket and, and, and handing it out. He was there through it all. He saw the raising of Lazarus. He saw the healing of blind eyes. He saw all the miracles. Nobody was any closer to Jesus than Judas. But at the end, we see here, Judas never was saved. 
That you can do all those things. You, you can sit through the sermons and you can go to all the, the services and you can, you can experience it all and still not be saved. You can be so close yet, yet so far away. He was a fake follower the whole time. And here we come to, to the passage where it's finally coming out. Because time always tells. You sit and watch somebody and you'll see whether it's real. And for three years he faked it. And now here at the end, it's all coming out. In verses 14 and, and 15 and 16, we start to see it. And you can look down there at it. It says, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, I'm getting out while the getting's good. It's been up and down for three years and now it's getting real bad. They're talking about killing him. And he's starting to show who he really is. His true colors are starting to fly. He says, what, what, what will you give me? In verse 15. And they said unto him, he says, what will you give me if I deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver, like $25. And from that time, he saw an opportunity to, to betray him. And then right here, Jesus makes it known. I know who you are. I've always known who you are. So Judas here stands as a warning to everybody. Of someone so close yet so far away. Of someone who had so much and in the end died with so little. Of someone who wasted the greatest opportunity that anybody could have ever had. I'll even say this, of somebody who went to hell from a pew. There's a lot of people that go to hell from a gutter. They go to hell from a, a bar. But there's, there's a lot of people that go to hell from a church pew too. And Judas here stands as a warning, as an example of somebody who was so close yet so far away. So my message to you this morning before we even get into it is don't be Judas. Let's examine ourselves, let's ask ourselves today, make our calling and election sure, and make sure today that we're not Judas. So let's work our way through the worst betrayal ever. I want to show you, I'm going to work, we're, we're going to do three points as we work our way through this, just to kind of to, to let you know where we're going. I want to show you, first of all, the secret place of betrayal. And you'll see that in verses 17 to 19, as they come to Jesus and, and they ask a, a good question. I, I get this question all the time as we leave the house. The kids will always look at me and say, Dad, where are we going to eat at? I mean, that is the question. And I can look at them and I can say, didn't we just eat? And they'll say, oh, we still, we, we, where are we going to eat at while we're out? So in verse 17, they go to Jesus and they say, where are we going to eat at? That's what they say. It says in verse 17, the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. I love how they give you these, these little timing notes. To show you that Jesus is on a perfect timetable. He's got a place to be and a time to be there. And everything is working according to God's perfect timing. So they come to him. He's on schedule and they come to him on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The disciples come to Jesus and they say unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? I don't have to, to tell you that the Passover is the biggest celebration of the of all the Jewish holidays. It would be like our Christmas when you would come to your family and say, where are we going to eat Christmas dinner this year? You can't decide that the day before Christmas. You're going to have to figure that out weeks ahead of time. There's got to be some preparation that's got to be made. And this is the Passover. It's the, the biggest event of the year. And so they're coming to Jesus and, and, and saying, where do you want to eat it? Where do you want to eat that, that, that Passover? And this would be the, the last Passover. Jesus would be the final Passover. So they say, where, where are we going to eat? Where do you want to eat this at? 
We need to find a place that fits 13 guys. We've got to get a lamb. We've got to sacrifice the lamb. We've got to roast the lamb. We've got to set up the table and the, and the chairs. We've got to get all this ready. Uh, tell us where you want us to, to eat. There was a million people coming to Jerusalem at this time. I'm sure everything was full. And they're coming to Jesus saying, where are we going to eat this at? You need to tell us. Do you have a place? So that's the question. This was a big deal. It took a lot of work. You had to prepare it beforehand. I like this. The meal had to be prepared beforehand as Jesus was prepared before the foundation of the world to be the, the Passover for our sins. So what place are we going to eat? That's the question in verse 17. Verse 18, Jesus gives them an answer. I love this. He's got a plan. God always has a plan. He comes to him and he, and he says, go. You see that? Go into the city. And if you read Mark's version, Luke's version, John's version of this story, we know that Jesus sent two disciples. And he said, I want, to, I want to send Peter and I want to send John. And I want you guys to go into the city. And he says this. And say, he says, go into the city to such a man. This is my favorite part. You know what such a man is? He's not giving them a name. He's not telling them who it is. This such a man would be Mr. So-and-so. That's what that is. You go to Mr. So-and-so. I'm sure Peter and John sitting there thinking, could you not give us a little bit more detail here? There's a million people in the city and you want us to go to Mr. So-and-so? All such-and-such is what it would be. No names. Go into the, into the city. Find this guy. Like a needle in a haystack. One guy in a city of, of millions. Find that guy. Find Mr. Such and Such. Find Mr. So and So. Mark 14 says the only other thing that he gives them is he'll be carrying a pitcher of water. Kind of narrows it down, don't it? I guess because most of the women carried the pitchers of water. So I'm going to find Mr. Such and Such, Mr. So and So, and he's going to be carrying a, a pitcher of water. So Jesus is being very veiled, very vague. He's talking to the twelve, and he tells the two, "I'm going to send you out. You go to Mr. Such and Such. He'll be he'll have he'll have a pitcher of water. You tell him that it's time. You tell him the master is going to keep the Passover at his house tonight. So they go out." And it says they do exactly as the master says. Verse 19. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them. And they got everything ready for the Passover that night. They do exactly as they're told. They go into the city. They find Mr. So-and-so. They tell Mr. So-and-so. The master says, it's time. He needs your place. He's going to eat here tonight. So they got Mr. So-and-so's room. Mark 14 says it was a large upper room that was fully furnished. Jesus had, I believe, prepared this beforehand. You go to Mr. Such and Such, you tell him, Master has need of his house. And he goes and takes them to the upper room, opens it up, and it's fully furnished on the inside. Exactly what they need for the upper room. And they get it ready. So the question is, and I'll move on, why is Jesus being so secretive? Why is he only sending two? And when he tells the two, he doesn't tell them where it's going to be. He doesn't give them any vicinity whatsoever. He doesn't say it's going to be on this side of town or that side of town. He doesn't give a name of the guy. He says it's Mr. Such and Such. He'll be carrying some water. You'll find him. You'll figure it out. Why is he being so secretive? And the answer is, Jesus didn't want Judas to know. Judas had already, and if you want to see that, Judas had already said, we read it, said in verse 16, 
He was seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. And the perfect place to betray Jesus would be at night while they're eating dinner in an upper room where nobody's in the street, where nobody could hear about it, where there'd be no uproar. So if Jesus had said, we're going to this room at this time in this place, Judas would have said, ha ha, I can tell on him now. We'll catch him in the upper room. So Jesus is being very secretive because he doesn't want Judas to know. This night is way too important for him to get caught in that room. You say, what does that have to do with anything? That Jesus and only the two disciples know. So they're going and they're preparing it. And Jesus looks at the other disciples and says, all right, let's go. And they had no idea where they were going until they got there. This shows me, and I hope it shows you, that Jesus is in complete control. Even of his own (laughs) betrayal. That Judas didn't bring Jesus down. Jesus knew about it. Jesus even planned it. Jesus is controlling everything that happens. It's all happening according to his timetable. God has arranged these events from before the foundation of the world down to the tiniest of details even where they'd meet. Jesus is going to be crucified in a window of time exactly when he's supposed to be crucified. All of it is under the the divine sovereignty of God that he is putting everything in place. Everything's on schedule. God has arranged these events. He's arranged the events of the crucifixion. He's arranged the events of history. I believe he's even arranging the events of our own lives every single day. God is in complete control of everything. That's great truth. Even the darkest events of history, which I said that it's the worst betrayal ever. The worst thing maybe that's ever happened in the history of the world. The betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion. There's nothing darker in all of history. And if you can say God's in control of the darkest moments of all time, then can't you say he's in control of all moments of all time? Not one single second is out of control. R.C. Sproul would say there's not one maverick molecule in the entire universe that God is not in complete control of. It's all on his divine timetable. It's all planned just like Mr. So-and-so. Jesus is, I'll move on, the conductor, and the world is his orchestra. And he is in complete control of it all. Even the events of our current day, what's going on in the Ukraine and what's going on in Russia, it's all under the control of Almighty God. And I don't know about you guys, but even in this betrayal, it makes Jesus look even more glorious than he already does. So that's the secret place of betrayal. Now we're in the upper room. Let's show you the surprising announcement. It says in verse 20, and we're just going to get into the dinner now, because it says when the evening was come, Jesus goes up into the room. And he's going to sit down with the twelve. And again, I don't want to give Mark and Luke and John, they give the same story. But as they go up into the room, there's going to be an argument amongst the disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're going to get into the upper room, and as they're arguing about who's the greatest, I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. Or I am. No, they're back and forth. Jesus is going to sit down and wash their feet. We don't get that here. He jumps on them, he shames them, and then it says they sit down to eat. I want you to picture this. I think when you preach a sermon, you need to put a picture in people's minds. So they sit down to eat, 
The old Passover, when it first began, they'd stand up because they had to be ready to go at all times. But now they would sit down and actually recline. It says that Jesus reclines with them. It would be in a U-shaped table, not like the, the painting that has them all, all on a, a long table. But they'd be in a U-shaped table. Jesus would be at the center. He's the Father. He's going to stand up and He's going to be the one that's handing out all the, the food and the, the, the drinks. And, and He's the one that's, that's... He's going to stand up and He's going to say, this, is, this wine represents this and, and this bread represents this. And he's, he's running the whole show. The twelve would be reclined around it. Jesus again at the center, serving and explaining. Beside Jesus, this is, this is interesting if you read it, that right on Jesus' right, which they were fighting over as they were going into the upper room, who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left? On the right would be John. John 13 says that, that John's actually whispering in Jesus' ear. That, he's, that John is leaning over on Jesus, on, almost on his shoulder, whispering in Jesus' ear. And on the left... Is Judas, the guest of honor, the one who gets the, the first piece. On the left is a special place. As they're going to pass it around, it would be passed first to Judas. John on his right and Judas on his left. If you knew someone was going to betray you, would you sit them right beside you? Would you even invite them to dinner? Why did Jesus do it? Because Jesus loved Judas. So now it says, as they did eat, John 13 says that as, there, as Jesus is getting ready to say this in verse 21, that it says he's troubled in his spirit. I don't want you to think this was some kind of cold thing that Jesus was doing. He was sad. He was troubled. He was grieving. He was deeply disturbed. He was emotionally involved. Jesus had poured his life into Judas. He, he knows it's going to happen, but it still broke his heart. So as they did eat, and in the middle of their meal, it says in verse 21, I don't know if Jesus kind of done one of those, I have an announcement to make, where he, he, he hit a spoon on a glass and, and, and stood up and said, I've got, I got to make an announcement or I'm going to declare this. But he says in verse 21, verily, which means he's about to say something extremely important. He says, verily I say unto you. And, and here it is. This is the big statement. One of you in this room, around this table, of my closest friends is going to betray me. And this is the drama of the text that this just dropped like a bomb in that room. That it just silenced everybody in there. They had heard before that Jesus would be betrayed. They thought it would be an enemy. They thought it would be a religious elite. They thought it would be somebody on the outside would betray him. But they had never heard that it would be one of them. One of you, he says, shall betray me. One of you around this table is going to, going to turn your back on me. One of you is going to turn me in. One of you is going to hand me over. One of you is going to deliver me. Again, U-shaped table, Jesus in the middle, going around the room. One of you is going to turn me in. One of you that's been with me through thick and thin. One of my friends. One of my loyal companions. Not one of 500. Not one of 70. One of you 12 will turn your back on me and be a traitor. One of you will be a turncoat. You've heard that phrase before. I looked it up this week. Where did that come from? In the old days, they'd wear the badge of who they followed on their jackets. And if you turned on them, you'd take your jacket off and turn it inside out so that nobody would know who you followed. One of you's a traitor. 
One is with us, but not really with us. One in this room, one of the twelve. It doesn't shock us because we've heard it before, but can you imagine the shock in their faces? One of you will betray me. Jesus knew this all along. John 6, Jesus said, I've chosen you twelve and one of you is the devil. Jesus always knows. We don't always know. It's hard for us to tell. We can look at people on the outside, but we can't know the heart. But do you know this? Jesus always knows the heart. He knew the hearts of every man in that room. He knew the hearts of every man sitting around that table. And He knows the hearts of every man, woman, and child in this room. I have no idea who's real and who's fake in this room. But Jesus knows the hearts of all men. It's open and laid naked before Him. He knows everything. He knew the one there and He knows if there's one in here. There could be one in this room who's not real. Jesus knows. You might not even know. It's hard for us to know the reality of our own hearts. But Jesus knows. He knew about Judas. And it says in verse 22, and they were exceeding sorrowful. There's grief. Extreme grief. Above and beyond grief. This, this isn't a little. It says, and, and there was exceeding sorrowful. I mean, this is uh, uh, over and, and, and abundant amount of grief in this room. It's like they're all getting ready to cry. It's like they're all shocked and, and, and in horror. Oh no! One of us! And it says in John 13 that they started asking each other, who, who is it? Who, who do you think it is? And they look at him and they say, begin every one of them around the table. And I think it was just 11. I don't think Judas is doing it yet. Begin every one of them to say unto him, and this is a good question. It's not, I bet it's so and so. That's what we would do. I just said, I said that. I, I put it in exactly how I wanted it. That I said, one of you, it could be one of you in here today. And it could be. And, and, and most of us sitting here, I even did it this week. I thought, there could be one just like Judas in church today. And I started, th- I started thinking, who would it be? <laughs> it, it could be so and so, you know. They're awful. <laughs> Then I thought, no, they won't be at church. <laughs> That's what we do. When I said that earlier, you all probably started thinking, hmm, I wonder who that is. I bet it's, and you can fill in the blank. That's not what they did. Instead of them pointing fingers around the room, I bet it's Peter. I bet it's John pointing at each other. It's one of you. I, you're not faithful. They turn the finger of, I I wonder who it is, to Lord, is it me? That's where we have to go. That's an honest question. That's a heart-searching question. It's a hard question to ask, but it's something that we have to do. We have to, as we hear this, ask the same question that the, the disciples ask. Is it I, Lord? Is it me that's going to do this? We've got to examine ourselves. Am I the one? I believe they knew their own weakness. 
I believe they knew that they had a heart that was prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I know that I'm, I'm not what I ought to be. I know that I'm often unfaithful. I know that I, I don't think the way I ought to think and say the things I ought to say. I know who I am. It could be me. That's what they were doing. It might be me. Oh, don't let it be me. That's the response that we need. And I want to show you something else. It's the honest question of, is it me? To none of them suspected Judas. That's how good of a hypocrite he was. That none of them thought, I've always known it was him. No. Judas was a great hypocrite. He knew how to play the game. No doubt about him. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He's the real deal. He knew the language. There are people in church that know how to talk the lingo. Know how to dress the part. That's what a hypocrite is. You wear a mask, you put on the clothes, and you play a part, and it's not really who you are. You take all that off when you're around your friends or when you're at home around your family. But when you walk into a religious service, you all of a sudden become what you really aren't. Judas knew how to do that. He could cuss at home and walk in and say, Morning, brother. He knew what he was doing. He knew he could hide out and do sinful things on Saturday night and walk into church and act like a holy saint. There's a lot of people that do that. Judas was good. These disciples said, is it me? Before they said, is it Judas? That's how good he was. What a hypocrite. And oftentimes it's the ones who know how to do it the best who surprise us the most. I've been around long enough to see people leave who you never thought would leave. Turn their coats around that you never thought they'd turn their coats around. It's usually the one you least expect. Which again makes us all think, hmm, is it me? Judas was a preacher. He sent them out as the apostles. Go out. Cast out demons. Heal people. Preach the gospel. Judas was one of them. He was good. And then Jesus, Jesus kind of gives them a hint here. Verse 23. i got to get going. And he answered. They're all asking, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? So Jesus says, here, I'll give you a little hint. Here's what it is. And he answered and he said... This isn't a very good hint. He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. I mean, this is its not a good one. He who's dipping in the same bowl as me. If you guys ever go out and, and eat salsa at a restaurant, you know that you have, I've got seven in my family, and every one of us in the same bowl. Same time. Fighting chips, you know. So as he says that, all their hands are in the dip. I wanted to know if they was eating salsa. They're not eating salsa. They had bread. You get this, I had to look it up. because I thought, what are they dipping in? Is it queso? I don't know. I, I need to get it in my head. This is what, they had a mixture of <laughs> raisins, figs, dates, vinegar, and salt. And they'd mix it all together and dip their bread in it. It's nothing like salsa. But they loved it and they, they dip in it. And I'm sure when Jesus said, the one who dips with me is the one who's going to betray me, all their hands went, 
You know, no, okay, not, not me. He's not giving them a very good hint. So now it's like we're, we're all here. It's one of the twelve, and all twelve are, are dipping in the bowl. So now who is it, Jesus? He's not helping them at all. And why not? I'll give you, give you, give you two reasons here. Why not? First, Jesus wants the disciples to know that one of them is going to betray him. He wants them to know that one is a betrayer so that when it happens, they're not caught off guard. So that in, in, in just a few hours when Jesus, when Judas turns his coat around and, and is a turncoat and a traitor and a backstabber, that they're all not sitting there saying, Oh no, we never saw it coming. And their faith is, is destroyed. Jesus didn't see it. We didn't see it. It's over. Jesus is dying. There's a betrayer. So Jesus wanted them to know there, there is a betrayer amongst us. I know it. I want you to know it. Don't be surprised when it happens, guys. And it will. And I think he wants us to know it too. You're going to be around Christians. And no matter what church you go to, there's always going to be hypocrites in it. There's always going to be tares among the wheat. Don't you be surprised when there's a traitor in your midst. I wish I'd known this when I first started preaching. Because it hurt me so bad when people would leave. Surprised me. I never saw it coming. Jesus wants them to know it's one among the twelve. And if there's one amongst the twelve, there's going to be one amongst the hundred. Don't be surprised when it happens. Don't let it destroy your faith. Don't let it make you question, well, what's going on? Is it all falling apart? There's always going to be traitors, always going to be fakes, always going to be hypocrites in the church. Our problem today isn't that there are people that are leaving the church and turning their back on Christ. It's that when, when they do nowadays, we look at them and say, oh, they're still Christians. They've turned their coat around. They're ashamed of Jesus. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in the last day. These people have went out uh, uh, from us because they never were truly of us. This could be family. There could be a traitor or a hypocrite in your family. Amongst your friends, in the church. But it will happen. So Jesus wants them to know, this is going to happen. I'm on it. I, I know it's going to happen. You need to be warned about it. But he doesn't want to take it so far as to let them know who it is. Because you know Peter... If Jesus told them, this guy, Peter would have pulled his sword out and cut his ear off. That's just who Peter is. And they come at him with 500 soldiers, and Peter said, Charge! I'll fight him! Can you imagine if Jesus said it's Judas? All 11 would have tied him down and might have killed him. He doesn't want them to know who it is. Jesus has to let it happen. He can't stop Judas from doing what Judas is going to do. Which tells me again, and maybe I'm, I'm going too far with this, but Jesus could have stopped it at any time. But he came into the world to die. He came into the world to be crucified, to be betrayed, to lay down his life a ransom for many, to be the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, and nothing and no one could stop him from doing that. This had to happen. It was the next step. There must be a betrayal. So that's the surprising announcement. 
Now I want to give you the sad ending. The sad ending. It says in verse 24, this is heartbreaking. He's not done it yet. And you almost want to look at him here in verse 24 and 25 and say, don't do this, Judas. Do you not know the mercy? Do you not know what you're doing? Stop right here. Don't do this. Look what it says. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. I like that statement. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to his death, to his crucifixion. I already said it. There's nothing going to stop it. There's no doubt about it. There's no question. It, it, this is what he's going to do. Judas can't stop it. There's nobody in the, in the, in the world that could stop it. This is going to happen because it's, it's as it is written. It has been written in Psalm 22. This is what's going to happen. Isaiah 53, this is what's going to happen. This is going to happen as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. This is going to happen as it was laid out in the Old Testament. This is going to happen as it has been planned before the foundation of the world. Nothing can stop this from happening. Luke 22, 22 says that Jesus is going, the Son of Man is going to go as it was determined. Not by Judas, not by Pilate, not by Herod, as it was determined by God Himself. This is going to happen. Everything's going to go according to God's predetermined plan. Everything's on schedule. I keep saying that. I want you to know this. Jesus, His life was not taken. He freely laid it down. It's on schedule. It's on God's timing. Everything is happening in God's way. There's not a single step on the way to the cross that is out of place. Where Jesus said, okay, this, this, this isn't working out. Let's go to plan B or, or plan C. Everything's plan A working exactly according to His divine schedule. Amen. Let me show you this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 verse 23 I stopped for a second just to listen to you guys turn your Bibles. I told the funeral director this week, he was talking to me about church, about preaching. And uh, I said, there's two things I love to hear when I'm preaching. I'm pretty sure he thought I was going to say amens. I said, I love to hear the pages of Bibles turning. And I love to hear babies crying. And he said, that's, that's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I've just heard a baby cry. And now I'm hearing pages turn. It's music to a pastor's ear. Acts 2.23. Don't pinch your baby to make it cry, but I like hearing it. <laughs> Pastor wants to hear it. <laughs> Acts 2.23. Let's start in verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was no accident. Amen. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Oh, you guys are turning louder now. <laughs> Acts 4 verse 24. It says, when they had heard 
they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against him, against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all gathered together. You see that? He's telling all these people who are gathered against Jesus, all these rulers, all these scribes, all these Pharisees, all these Herod and, and Pontius Pilate and, and the Gentiles and all the people of Israel are all gathered together against Jesus to crucify Him. And it says in verse 28, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. That they're going to do it and it's going to be exactly the way God had it planned. That it was never out of His hands. He's in control of it all. Let's say that all of this was pre-written, predetermined, and predestined. And Judas played a crucial role in God's plan. Now watch this. You're going to love this. So the Son of Man goeth, as it is written of Him, but, this is a big one, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! Exclamation point. Yeah. Ouch. Jesus is, get, get this with me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross and be, I'm going to be betrayed. And Judas is on his left listening to everything that he says. I don't know if he was looking at him. Because again, John leaning on Jesus, Jesus would be have Judas leaning towards him. And Jesus says, but woe is that man who betrays Jesus, who betrays the Son of Man. Judas knows it's him. Jesus knows it's him. He says, woe is that man. Cursed is that man. Damned is that man. Doomed is that man. Destruction comes upon that man who betrays the Son of Man. Whoa! Cursed be that man. The curse of Almighty God will fall upon the one who betrays me. Again, sitting right beside him. And I'll add anybody who betrays Jesus. Woe is that man. Anybody who rejects Jesus and doesn't believe in him. Woe is that man. Woe is one who turns his back on Jesus. Woe is the turncoat. Woe is the, the traitor. Woe is those who Hebrew says tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he adds, even worse, even better if he'd never been born. It's better to have never been born than be damned to hell forever. That's terrifying. And I want you to get this. Get this. On one hand, Jesus says, every bit of this is planned, even what Judas is going to do to me. That it's been planned that Judas would do this from the foundation of the world. That Judas plays an important part in the the plan of God to get Jesus to the cross. That he knew it was going to happen. It, It has to happen. Nothing can stop it from happening. But on the other hand, Judas is 100% responsible for his own actions. 
So on one hand, you have the sovereignty of God that He's in, in control of it all. And the other hand, you have the responsibility of man that Judas has made his choice and he's going to go to hell and it's all going to be his fault. Amen. Jesus is condemning Judas to hell. And like any sinner who rejects Jesus, he's made his own choice. He chose to reject Jesus and he chose to go to hell. That was his choice. He's 100% responsible. And I think this is the final warning that Jesus gives him. Don't you? He's not done it yet. He's not taking the money yet. He's not turned him over yet. He's not kissed him on the cheek yet. He's not done it yet. Here's one more chance. Woe is that man. Cursed is that man. Don't you dare do this. His heart's broken. You've got a chance here, Judas. Judas hears it. What does Judas think? I think Judas' heart is hardening even as he hears it. It says in verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, he keeps up the show. I mean, I told you he's a great hypocrite because he's thinking, okay, the other 11 have asked Jesus, is it, is it I? So I better ask it too. So he looks at Jesus and says, is it me? Is it me? I said, Master, is it I? I want you to see just real quick. Verse 27, they say, Lord, is it I? And Judas says, Teacher, is it I? Master. Judas couldn't bring himself to even call him Lord. Judas, maybe even with his head down, said, Master, is it I? And Jesus looks at him and says, Thou hast said. You said it. Out of your own mouth. And Jesus now lets not everybody else know, but he lets Judas know. I know that it's you. John 13 says that in that moment, Satan enters Judas. Not a demon. Satan himself. Satan is not omnipresent that he is everywhere. Satan zeroes in and now enters into. And it only says of one other person that Satan enters into and it's the Antichrist. Satan enters into Judas in that moment. And Judas, Jesus looks at him and says, do it quickly. And Judas gets up and he walks out. And Judas will never see the light of day again. He goes and he gets his money. He turns him in. He shows up in the garden and he betrays him with a kiss. He hangs himself. His bowels gush out. His body's thrown into a trash heap. And his soul goes to hell. Where Acts chapter 2 says he has his, Acts 1 says he has his own place. There's a special place in hell for people like Judas. And he 100% deserves every last second of it. Judas had the best opportunity. He made a profession of faith, and I don't doubt that his profession at the very beginning was a sincere one. I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll go with you, Jesus. 
Just like the rest of the disciples, he made that profession that many in churches today will make. That they'll make a profession, I'm going to follow Jesus. They'll, they'll walk an aisle, they'll get on a knee, they'll, they'll stand with a pastor, they'll get into the, the baptistry and they'll say, I'm making a profession that I'm going to follow Jesus. Judas did that. What an opportunity. There he was with Jesus. He followed him for three whole long years. What an opportunity. He experienced so much, even more than any of us here have experienced it. He saw it flesh and blood with his own eyes and felt it with his own hands and heard it with his own ears. Nobody had what Judas had. What an opportunity. The clearest of evidence. He was there with his own eyes, saw Jesus walk on water. With his own eyes and his own hands, he fed the 5,000. With his own eyes, he saw Lazarus in the tomb and then come waddling out. Jesus saying, rise and and walk to, to the cripple. He saw it all. What more evidence could anybody ever need than what Judas got? I hear people say that all the time. Oh, if Jesus would just give me more evidence, I'd believe. It ain't the evidence you need. You need a miracle to change your heart. It's what you need. Judas' heart was never changed. He saw it all, but on the inside, he never was changed. He had the finest of preaching. <laughs> that tells me, this is, this, you could be in a church with the best preaching that has ever been. Like this one. <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding. You could take your kids to the best church ever. And would we not say Jesus was the greatest preacher that ever preached? You could take your kids to the best church that's ever been with the best preaching that they've ever heard. Preaching for an hour and expositing and explaining and, and giving all the detail of the, the second coming and of heaven and of hell and, and the gospel week after week after week. How many times do you think Judas heard the gospel? Over and over and over. He followed the best example that's ever lived. I do that. That's what I want. I want my kids to experience the power of God. I want them to see it for themselves in the church. I want them to see the life change. I want them to see not maybe the, the physical raising of the dead, but the spiritual raising of dead in the church. See that. Hear that. Know what God is doing in the church. I want them to, to see it for themselves. I want my kids to be in a church and to hear the best preaching they can possibly hear. I'm not going to send my kids to a church where it's watered down, terrible preaching. I want them to hear the best sermons. I want them to follow the best examples. I want them to see godly men living godly lives. I want to be an example in my home of what a godly man is. I want my girls to see godly women living the Bible out. Not just saying it, but living it. Judas had the best example that's ever lived. Nobody any more pure and holy than Jesus. He's walking around with Jesus saying, He never never says a bad word. He never thinks a bad thought. He never has a bad reaction. All these bad things happening and He's just the same all the time. Everything He does is right. The best example that ever lived. He had it all. What more could He need in order to get saved? You can have all that. I can bring my kids to the best preaching, see the results, and follow the best examples, but I can't guarantee they get saved. 
Judas had all that. What more could you ask for? What more could you do? It still takes a divine act of God on the heart of the individual. And Judas didn't have that. His heart was still hard. His heart was not changed. His eyes had not been opened. He wasn't saved the whole time. Listening to sermons, not saved. Following Jesus, not saved. Seeing the miracles, not saved. And it happens all the time. What needs to take place is eyes need to be opened and hearts need to be changed and only the Spirit of God can do that. So Jesus had the best opportunity. I've had parents come and tell me, Did you? I tried my best. I tried my best. What more could I do? Pray for a miracle of God on their hearts. Amen. That's all you can do. I want you to do that. Take them to the best church. Follow the best examples. See God at work. But at the end of the day, it's going to take a work of God on their hearts to save them. The best preaching, the best church, the best examples doesn't save anybody. Only God by His Spirit can save somebody. Amen. Judas missed the opportunity. You say, what happened to Judas? I'll tell you, it started simple. It wasn't like he was real good all the way up, and then all of a sudden, boom, Satan enters. <laughs> That's not how it works. Do you understand that? Judas had to open the door to Satan before Satan could ever enter into his life. You say, how did he open the door? I think it starts with a small crack. I think that Judas, if you follow his life, and I've done an extended study on the life of Judas throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even the mentions of him in Acts and, 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 and in, in other books, that he just opened the door. And it became that he wasn't satisfied. He thought he was going to get something out of Jesus. He thought he was going to ride the coattails of Jesus to a kingdom. And when he saw that stuff not starting to happen, that this isn't what it's all cracked up to be, the door opened to Satan and ultimately to walking away when he said, I need to get something out of this. And he's carrying around the money and he starts to skim it off the top. And a little bit of selfishness a little bit of love of money, a little bit of materialism, and he starts opening the door. And then it says that Satan put into his mind to betray Jesus. So it goes from his actions in, in, in what he's doing to his, his mind that I think Satan put the idea in his head. Hey, where else do you see that at? In Genesis chapter 3 maybe? Is God, not, God didn't say that. So there's an idea there. This, this ain't all it's cracked up to be. There's more out there for you. You can take the money and leave. This isn't what you need. And we hear that all the time in the church ta talking to our kids. This, this isn't right. This isn't what you need to be doing. There's more out there for you. And you're just opening up the door. That preacher's crazy, you know. Don't listen. And it's, it's, you've opened the door just a little bit and now you're starting to entertain the thoughts of the devil. And before you know it, the door is wide open and Satan enters in and he's turned and walked away from Jesus. You've got to be very careful the influences you have in your life and what you entertain in your mind. Don't let these false teaching 
Academics get into the minds of your kids. Be careful what you let them think or what you think or what it can start so simple and you end up being like Judas. It was a slow thing that ended in hell. Let me say this Judas didn't lose his salvation, he never had it. And you say, Why did Jesus choose Judas then? Why would he do that? And the answer is, Judas stands as an example to every single one of us of how close somebody can be to Jesus and still not knowing. Of how close you can be to the truth and still not believe it. Of how close you can come to the gospel and still not receive it. Of how close you can get to heaven and still go to hell. He tasted heaven and ended up in hell. Of how close you can be to the narrow gate and not enter. How close you can be to eternal life and still have eternal death. Of how close you can be to salvation and still receive damnation. Of how much you can know about Jesus and still not know him. I'll put that one last because nobody probably knew more about Jesus than Judas. You could probably sit down with Judas and tell me, what what did Jesus like to eat? Where did Jesus like to sleep? He could give you details about Jesus like nobody ever could. But deep down in the heart of hearts, he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stands as a big example to us all of how close you can come and still not be saved. So the question you have to ask yourself, and I think we all need to ask, is it I? Is that me? 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. And he has, know you not your own selves? How that Jesus is in you? Do you not know? Will you not check? You better find out now before you're surprised then. And we do these sermons every now and then when we come to it. But I, need, I think we need to do this now. I think we need to bow our heads today and ask that question. And not, uh, is it somebody else? But is this me? Am I right? Am I really saved? Do I really know Jesus? Am I really going to heaven? Have I really believed the gospel? Is this me? Or am I just playing the game? Don't just play the game. Don't be Judas. Be real. So let's pray. I want us to ask sincerely, is it I? And if there's any doubt, I want you to, I want you to ask, give me real faith. Give me real saving faith. Understand, just like that song said that we, we listened to, beautiful song. You need to know what Judas didn't know. That right now in this moment, Jesus is offering you mercy. There's a chance. Don't you walk out of here with any doubt whatsoever in your mind. And I know, I know this too. I know this too. And I know you guys are getting ready, but I have to say this. I know that, there, that this is a type of sermon where everybody in here, if they truly asked, is it I? You could have a bunch of people who were fakes when they walked in, walk out real. You really could. 
So knowing that, because if we really do a hard examination and say, is it me? Is it I? Am I the one that's not real? And we really start checking and the Spirit of God's working and His Word is, is planting that in our hearts and there's something good going on here that there's also something very bad going on here. That Satan is whispering in the ear of people saying, don't you dare listen to that. You're fine. Keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. But there's a pull going on here. I know that. I've known the weight of this all week long. So we need to look at our lives and say, is it I? Lord, is it I? That's the question. And if you're saved here today and you're sure, praise God for the divine act of mercy that he's showed you in changing your heart. Let's pray together. Father, this is a very serious, I said, weighty passage. And I ask that you would take it and use it to work in the hearts and the minds of the people in this room. I know there'll be some that it goes in one ear and out the other. But I pray that there's some in here who are taking it to heart and saying, is it I? There's nothing wrong with doing some examination, some testing, some seeing, some making sure. But I, I think that's bad if we do it all the time. But I think that right now, in, a, in this moment today, for this hour, it's good for us to examine. So God, if there's anybody in here who has any doubt, I pray that you'd show that to them. That by your spirit, you'd open their eyes and they'd see the reality of where they stand. And they'd put their faith in, in Christ today. And they'd know the full assurance of salvation that he gives. The full forgiveness of sin. The full offer of heaven. So please, God, work in hearts. Thank you for warning passages like this one. Don't let any of us be Judas. Let us be like Peter, who failed time and time and time and time and time again. But he never was a traitor. He never was a turncoat. And he remained faithful all the way to the end. May we have people like Peter here today and not those like Judas. Please, God, work by your spirit here today. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.